reading this evening will be read from John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence tonight. It's been a beautiful day. And for that, we're thankful. We are glad to live in a free country that affords us the privilege of coming together to worship God in spirit and in truth. I appreciate the songs that were sang just a moment ago and the opportunity to be a part of our song service when Brother Billy began, Bomb of Gilead, I turned to Jordan and said, this is your song. And the reason I said that was because when we had our gospel meeting going on, you remember we had a luncheon. And so I, I don't remember who all I was sitting with, but I was in the old fellowship hall. And we were supposed to have singing. I think it was going to start at like 1 o'clock. Well, it was like 12 o'clock or so. And I hear somebody in the auditorium bearing down on Balm, Balm of Gilead. And it sounded like Billy. And I thought, I didn't think we were supposed to start this soon. And it, it just continued on. And so finally, I walked in. And Jordan and Danton were up here, and they were letting it go. <laughs> and so, anyway, I appreciate our young folks, and I appreciate their spirit. And we have, we have some really talented young people, both male and female. And for that, we are grateful. We're grateful for their influence and their encouragement and their presence. I was thinking just a moment ago at the number of young folks that are sitting down front. There are some more mature people that could take a cue from them because these guys are here tonight and there are some folks that ought to be here that aren't here. And so that says a lot about them and about their parents and the fact that they are here tonight. And so we appreciate them very, very much. I want to ask you tonight to turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have one of seven recorded I am statements in the Gospel of John. In this chapter, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. He would say in verse 48, I am the bread of life. When you read this narrative, you find out that based on what Jesus said on this occasion that many of the people that were present on this occasion were offended at what they had heard. As a result of that, John tells us in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then Jesus said to the 12, and you can almost imagine Jesus as he turns to the 12, and says to them, do you also want to go away? Listen now, if you would, at what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In these two, in these two verses, I believe that we have insight into the faith 
of the Apostle Peter, not just Peter, but the other apostles. But more than that, we are, we are granted insight into the message and the man, Jesus. Because both are extremely important. And so tonight I want us to think for just a moment or two about the man and the message, Jesus. And as we look at the sixth chapter of John, there are some things that I would call attention to as these things relate to our theme. I want to begin by suggesting to you that Jesus has the right message to save. The Apostle Peter identified him as the one who had the words of eternal life. Jesus has a message. That message is worthy of sharing. And as we think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want to begin by talking just a little bit about the fact that he is, that he has, rather, the right message to save. And the reason is because he has the words of eternal life. There are some considerations that maybe we ought to take a look at as those things relate to our point. First of all, let me suggest that the message that Jesus has for the human family is a message that is distinctive. There are a lot of messages in our world today. There are a lot of folks that are saying a lot of things. But the message of Jesus is distinct. It is distinct in comparison to other messages and in comparison to other books. Let me just suggest a couple of reasons why his message is distinctive. Number one is because it is unique. Do you know any other book that compares to the Bible? Do you know any other teaching that compares to the teaching of Jesus? I don't know of any other teacher any other teaching, any other message? Sometimes people talk about the teaching of Gandhi and other popular leaders in days gone by. There have been any number of individuals in our world that have been catalysts for social changes and other types of revolutions. But when you look at Jesus Christ and his message, it is a unique message. What makes it so unique is his message is inspired of God. Paul said every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness' sake. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Furthermore, in that same chapter, he would point out that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the apostles in John chapter 16 at verse 13 that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. They had the opportunity and the responsibility to record the teachings of Jesus. And we have those teachings. And so this book this message is unique in that sense. 
not only is it unique, but let me just share this with you very quickly. It's not in the notes. But it is a united message. You begin in the book of Genesis, and Moses in the Pentateuch begins laying the framework of the foundation for the coming of the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the promised seed. In chapter 12, God calls on a man by the name of Abraham, and we call him the friend of God, the father of the Hebrew nation. And God said to Abraham, In you shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. And so you have the inspired writers tracing that seed line. The Old Testament pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And then the unity of this message is further revealed when you get to the New Testament. When you pick up Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins by talking about the earthly genealogy of Jesus, King Jesus. And in chapter 1, Matthew tells us that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And that she would bring forth a son, his name would be called Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. He went on to say that all of this was done in accordance with what Isaiah, the statesman prophet, had penned some seven centuries earlier when he said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Therein lies the unity of the scriptures. And so from Genesis to Revelation, there is this united, this unifying theme, if you please. And so the message of Jesus, it's distinctive. It's distinctive because it's unique, yes, and because it's united, but then also because it's universal. There are some messages that have been penned by individuals in our world today, and maybe they have been penned with a certain segment of society in mind. There are some clubs and organizations that target certain people. The gospel is for all. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What other message do you know that has the ability to save man and that is for every man? The universal nature of this message. So, this message is distinctive, yes, but it is also a message that delivers. It delivers us from sin from unrighteousness. This book was written so that we might come to understand that God so loved the world. That as Jesus would say, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you know that God had you in mind when he sent his son Jesus into the world? That Jesus Christ came to die on Calvary's cross with you in mind? Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Paul said, God commendeth his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To know that God truly, genuinely loves us. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 4, that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I said just a minute ago that Jesus has the right message to save. 
There is a correlation between salvation and an understanding of the will of God. This message that we call the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught people what to do to be saved. Jesus in John chapter 3 discussed the new birth. And he said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. So he asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus then said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When people comply with the new birth, when they are baptized into Jesus, they contact his blood. Furthermore, they are then placed in his body, the church. Why do we need the blood of Christ? Because that's what washes away our sins, Acts twenty-two sixteen. Why do we need to be in the body of Christ? Because Paul said that Christ is the Savior of the body. If a person has not been baptized into Christ, they are not in the body of Christ. If they haven't been baptized, they are outside the sphere of the saved, the cleansed, the redeemed. And so, this message, the message of Jesus, emphasizes the fact that it is a message of deliverance. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. No wonder Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. This message is extremely important. It's tied to the salvation of our soul. So it saves and then it sanctifies. The Bible tells us that we are sanctified or set apart from the world unto God. How does that occur? Well, when we obey the gospel, what message tells us what to do to be saved, to be a part of the body of Christ, to enjoy sanctification or this idea of being set apart? The truth does. How do I know that? Because Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So we are saved and we are sanctified. And then there is a third thing. We talk about being delivered from sin, being sanctified in Christ. But think about the security that we have. When you obey the gospel, when you do what Jesus said in this book that we call the teaching of our Lord, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're saved. If you've done what the Lord has said, I promise you, you're saved. Now, don't just, take, don't just take my word for it. Take the Lord's word for it. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, John said, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He said, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Can I be secure in my salvation? Absolutely. Can I know that I'm saved? Yes, I can. Well, well, what do I need to do? Somebody says, what do I need to do to feel secure? Do what Jesus said. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 32. Jesus said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Jesus said that we are to confess him before others. Matthew 10, 32. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. So if I've done that, what does that mean? I'm a New Testament Christian. 
It means I'm a child of God. It means I've been saved, that I have security in my life. How do I maintain a secure relationship by walking in the light? Do you remember what John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. So if we are faithful to the Lord, if we're striving to do our best, to live in harmony with the teaching of God, what do we have? Security. This is a secure message, the message of Jesus. And then there is a third thing that I would share with you. As we think about Jesus has the right message to save, and that is this message is a message of discipleship. What's the intent of God's word? to make you a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It is to put us in a saved relationship with the Lord and then it is to aid us in staying saved in the Lord. So, what about this discipling message? Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 31 talked about that we are his disciples if we what? If we continue in his word. What about that word? Well, number one, it educates. I was in a bookstore the other night, and it was fascinating to look at all the different subjects that were addressed in that bookstore. You just wouldn't believe the number of books they had. And all the, the, the different kinds of books and the different subject matter that was addressed in those books. But think about God's Word. It educates us. What other book do you know that touches on so many different things? We talk about history, science, medicine, the home, marriage, salvation. We, we talk about human relations, employer-employee relations. All of that summed up in one book. And they had a section with just Bibles in it. And I looked, I looked those Bibles over from cover to cover, from top to bottom. Well, this book will educate you. Paul said, all scripture is inspired of God. And he said, it's profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction, in righteousness. This book right here will get you on the road to righteous living. Paul said, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man, instructing us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Yes, God's word, it educates. But then there's a second thing, and that is it elevates. Wherever the word of God goes, you know what it does? It lifts the human family up. I'm convinced that one of the things that made our country strong in days gone by was the fact that men and women, young and old, black and white, rich and poor, believed that this book was God's holy word. Not only did they believe that this book was the word of God, they believed in the God who inspired it. Look at our country. Look at the greatness of our country in days gone by. 
and look at the belief system that people had in our country and look at it today. We talk about the word of God elevating mankind. Wherever God's word goes, whatever civilization it touches, it raises the level of the behavior of the people within that society. Remove it and what do you have? Heartache and chaos and sorrow and tragedy, turmoil. Go back and read Hosea chapter 4. Hosea said in the long ago, bringing an indictment against the children of God, he said there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. And he said as a result of that, you know what they had? He said there is swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. He said with bloodshed after bloodshed, they break all restraint. What happened? They abandoned the word of God. As a result of that, what, what were the consequences? Rather than elevating man, it brought him down. And that's what's going on in our country today. We just don't have enough sense to know it. We don't have enough sense to realize that this book will elevate our society. It will elevate our country. And there are a lot of folks that need to hear that message. Now, the reason I believe this message will elevate your life is because it sets before us the supreme model to pattern our lives after. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he said Christ has left us an example that we should follow in his steps? How could you find fault with somebody trying to live like Jesus? What about Paul? When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Paul said, be followers of me or imitators of me even as I also am of Christ. Here was the apostle Paul saying, look, I have modeled my life after the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you follow my life insofar as I depict Christ in my daily life. So that will elevate the human family. And we need a lot of people in our society today to buy into that truth. To realize that Jesus has the right message to save. And that message not only educates, it elevates. And there's a third thing it does, and that is it equips. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, we, we think about the inspiration process. And the fact that in the first century, the New Testament was being written, superintended by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that one of the byproducts of God's word and inspiration, inspired men, was the equipping of the saints. How do I know how to serve Almighty God? How do I know how to live and be pleasing to the Lord? This book that we call the Bible, it equips us. You want to know how to be a servant of God? You want to know how to be to be a benefit to the human family, to the cause of Christ, to live in such a way so that you can glorify Almighty God, read this book. You read this book and you will find out how to equip your life so that you can be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. And then there is a fourth principle, and that is it edifies. It will build you up. When Paul stood before the elders of the church while he was in... While he was in Miletus, 
He said, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able. That word able is the same term found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what Paul is saying to the elders of the church at Ephesus is that God's word has the ability, the power to build you up, to give you an inheritance among all those which are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So what does that say to me? It says to me that the more time that I spend in the word of God, the deeper my faith, the stronger my faith. What it says is it's going to build me up. When you go to the gym, what do you go to the gym for? To build muscle, don't you? To build stamina, to build strength. You know how you build spiritual strength? And stamina, it's by reading and studying and meditating on the truth of Almighty God. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy paths to knowing this book. You just got to roll up your sleeves and get involved in studying the greatest book ever written. It's called the Bible. We need to know it, cover to cover. We need to understand what this book teaches, and then we need to, earn, we need to internalize its contents and live it out every day. And in so doing... We'll be the kind of people that the Lord would be pleased with. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why is that? Why does, why does God want you to let his word find a home in your heart? Because it'll build you up. It'll, it'll, it'll strengthen you. It will, it will encourage you. It will comfort you. Do a lot of things. There's a second thing I want you to see. Peter not only said to the Lord that he had the words of eternal life, but he said, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only does Jesus have the right message to save, but he is the right man to save. Jesus is the right man to save. And the reason is because he is the word who has the ability to impart life. John tells us in the opening verses of chapter 1, In him was life, and the life, he said, was the light of men. To think that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the word who gives life. I want to begin by making an evaluation. And I want to call attention again to the words of the Apostle Peter. Now, you have to understand that here is Jesus. He's been teaching. We, we think about the great miracles that he has performed, the crowds that are following him. And now multitudes are walking away. They're leaving him. And so Jesus asked the question. It is a probing, penetrating question. Will you also go away? Sometimes Peter spoke up and got himself in trouble. Sometimes he said something before he thought through what he was talking about. On this occasion, he not only got it right, he got it exactly right. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So what about this evaluation? Is it not the case that what we have to do is evaluate? We have to make an evaluation of the Christ? Let's just think about for a moment or two what, what Peter said. When, when Peter is standing before Jesus, he makes an affirmation that will stand the test of time. Note what he says. We have come to believe and know. That implies a process, doesn't it? What that says is that Peter, based on the evidence before him, had come to believe that Jesus was exactly who he, who he claimed to be. Who was that? The Son of God? In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They offered a number of answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked, but whom do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So here is the Apostle Peter, a fisherman by trade. And he has been able to spend time with Jesus. He's heard him preach. He has listened to him teach on numerous occasions. He has observed him healing the sick, helping people, performing any number of miracles. And Peter said, look, based on the evidence that I have before me, here's my conclusion. You are the son of the living God. And Peter said, that's not what I'm saying. That's what we're saying. Peter said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Think about the implications of that. Peter Look, look, Peter made a lot of mistakes in his life. And he wasn't always where he needed to be. But you have to give him credit here. His faith was blossoming and blooming. And we talk about being a work in progress. Peter was a work in progress. And Peter is saying, look, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. And then what about, what about the prophets of old? What they have to say about Jesus? You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5 to the religious people of his day? He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. Just a moment ago, we talked about the unity of scripture and the fact that the Old Testament fits hand in glove with the New Testament. And there is harmony between the Testaments. The Old, Testament, the Old Testament was a shadow of the good things to come, according to Hebrews chapter 10. Well, down in about verse 47, Jesus chided them because, you see, they put a lot of faith in what Moses said. And so Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. Why is that, Lord? Because he wrote about me. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses talked about that prophet that God would raise up. And it would be that prophet that all people were instructed 
to hear. And so you can begin in the book of Genesis and you can go all the way down to Malachi and you read the prophets over and over again talking about the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. And they were pointing people in the direction of Jesus. And then what about the people? What did they have to say about him? I understand that there were some people that rejected him. And there were some folks that weren't interested in him. But take, for example, that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You remember the, the conversation that Jesus had with her at Jacob's well? Jesus identified himself as the Messiah to her in verse 26. What'd she do? She went back to her own people, didn't she? And she said, come see a man that's told me everything that I've ever done. And the record says that many of the Samaritans believed on him. And they said, we believe not just because of the testimony of the Samaritan woman, but they had seen him for themselves. They had the opportunity to hear him. And their conclusion, he's the Christ. He is who he claims to be. What about John chapter 9? You remember Jesus giving sight to a man that had been born blind? The religious leaders of that day, they asked the question, or rather, the disciples asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, Jesus, Jesus gave sight to this man. And it created an uproar among the religious people of that day. And so down in the latter part of that chapter, Jesus asked the question, do you believe in the Son of God? And that fellow said, Lord, who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. And you know what he said? Lord, I believe the testimony of people. What about the centurion, that Roman centurion that stood at the foot of the cross or who was in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth when he was crucified on Calvary? You remember what he said? Truly this man was the son of God. Let me tell you what. When you begin examining the evidence and you sift through what the scriptures have to say, here's the conclusion. He's the son of God. Peter had it right. Peter said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is it God wants from us? Let me tell you what he wants from us. He wants us to read, to study, to meditate on this book. He wants us to read the Old Testament about what the prophet said concerning the coming of Jesus. He wants us to read the New Testament, to read what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said about the Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection. And ultimately, we read about his ascension into heaven and the fact that he's coming again. The Lord wants you to take these things into account and then he wants you to draw your conclusions. He wants you to decide about Jesus. Now we talk about what Peter said, what the prophets said, what the people said, but let me ask this question. Personally speaking, what do you say? I mean, it's one thing to talk in theory about what other people say, but what do you think about Jesus? What do you think? Who is he? I mean, we talk about Jesus being the son of God, that he is the right man to save. Oh, he is. Now, as we think about Jesus Christ, the son of God, and we make that evaluation, 
I want to just share with you very quickly an explanation. And there are a couple of things I want to point out here. Number one, salvation is exclusively in Jesus. Simon Peter said, and Simon Peter understood that Jesus was the right man to save. He said, you are the Christ, that is the anointed one, the coming Messiah, the son of the living God. By way of explanation, what you and I need to understand is salvation is exclusively in Jesus. We live in a world today that has bought into any and everything. The devil has sold our world a bill of goods that is false to the core. And what the devil wants you to believe is this. You want to believe in Jesus? Hey, that's okay. You want to follow the teaching of Jesus? Listen, good for you. You want to say that you're a child of God, a Christian? Hey, that's all right. But if you want to be a follower of Islam, you want to follow the teaching of Muhammad, you want to be accepting of the Koran, then that's okay too. I mean, after all, we're all going to the same place. You want to be a follower of the teaching of Buddha? Hey, that's all right too. I mean, all roads lead to the same place. Please listen very carefully. That is false to the core. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Salvation is exclusively in Jesus Christ. Luke said in Acts chapter 4 at verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name of the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now that's what the record says. The Bible says that salvation is exclusively in Jesus. He's the only one who can save. And people are living with false hopes if they believe otherwise. Now is that politically correct? No. Is that going to win your friends in, in society today when you make a statement like that? Probably not. But here's the key. We're interested in truth. The truth will set you free. If we're not going to teach and preach truth, we might as well take our shingle down outside and close up shop and go home because truth and truth alone will set you free. So, salvation is exclusively in Jesus. And then secondly... Salvation has been extended by Jesus. Remember what he said? Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The promise being, I'll give you rest. Over and over again, what did Jesus try to do? Get people to follow him. Get people to live for him. Let me just share very quickly three things about this great invitation. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are three things that stand out in my mind. Number one, Jesus Christ is the great physician. He is the great physician, and he is the one who has the ability, the power, to heal your sins. If you had terminal cancer, wouldn't it be a great thing if the doctor could walk in and say, I got good news, I have a cure, I can heal you today? Would you not be ecstatic? 
I mean, would you not fall down on your knees and give thanks to Almighty God? Let me tell you what. There is somebody who has the ability to heal your soul. And that soul is far more important than the body that houses your soul. To know that Jesus as the great physician can heal a life that has been marred and scarred and hurt and broken by sin. To think about that song we sang just a moment ago, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. To know that the Lord can heal you. He can take a life that has been broken and shattered and battered by sin and he can make that life whole. Read the book of Matthew, particularly chapter 9. When Jesus said, those who are whole have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus came to heal the sick. That is the sin sick of our world. And then secondly, Jesus as the bread of life can satisfy our longing hearts. No one else can satisfy us like Jesus can. Listen to what he says, for example, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. You talk about somebody that has the innate ability to satisfy your soul. There are a lot of folks in our world today, where are they looking to find satisfaction, happiness, contentment in the world? They think that, that if they have this or that or if they buy this or that or if they can get this, this position or that position or if they can accumulate some power over here, that that's going to somehow satisfy their soul. And Jesus said as the bread of life, I can satisfy your soul. And then thirdly, Jesus as the resurrection and the life can give you hope beyond the grave. Jesus may come in my lifetime. He might come in your lifetime. The fact is, I just don't know. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But I know this. If the Lord Jesus Christ does not come in my lifetime, I'm going to walk the corridors of death. I'm going to experience, as Paul said, the sting of death. It's coming. There's nothing I can do to prevent it. No amount of exercise, no medication, no vitamins, no fountain of eternal life or waters of eternal life that people talk about. It's not out there. Death is coming. But I know this, that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. And I know that when I step outside this temporal veil of existence, that I can go home to be with God. And one day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you know what he's going to do? He's going to raise my body from the dead. And that body is going to be reunited with my soul. And I can live forevermore with Almighty God in heaven. So, could I say this? If you're not a Christian, Jesus is for you. You need him. Maybe you don't know it, but you need him. You can't afford not to have him in your life. Not only do you need Jesus, but you need his message. You need it operating in your life, in your marriage, 
in your child rearing, as you grow older, you need this message in your life. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, would you come to Christ believing that he is the Son of God? Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. Live faithfully until death. Let God give you that crown of life, James 1.12. If you're, if you're unfaithful, come home. Could we pray with you and for you? God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.